Our scripture reading for today is from Mark 1, verses 9 through 11. We continue to inch away through this book as we behold Christ in all his glory and majesty. Mark 1, 9 through 10. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. At the inception of our great nation, a battle cry so clearly describes the hearts of our forefathers. The heavy-handed taxation from the British crown with their highly unpopular stamp act of 1766 and the infamous Townsend Act of 1767 created a spirit of resentment among the 13 colonies. The Continental Congress, which had no proper representation in the British Parliament, cried out, no taxation without representation. This battle cry began what we know today as the American Revolution. It gave birth to our nation and a new experience in government, a representative republic. But why is representation so important? Why did a lack of representation motivate a band of colonialists to stand together, fight together, and win a war against the most fearsome army of their time? What motivated them to fight? Well, representation is important because alone we're too weak. We need something or someone stronger than us to stand for us, to represent us. This is true in the political realm, and this is true in the spiritual realm as well. Friends, spiritually, we are bankrupt. If we were to stand before God alone without proper representation, we would be destroyed immediately. God himself would destroy us because he is a consuming fire. But, and this is our guiding thought for today, Jesus represents his people before God by identifying with his people. And we see that in our text today symbolically through baptism. We're going to see that next week practically through his temptation, right? But today we see it symbolically through baptism. So we're going to see this in our passage today in two ways. We're going to see Jesus representing his people in his humility in verse 9. And then we're going to see Jesus representing his people in his exaltation in verses 10 
and the lover. So in the previous sections, as we consider Jesus' humility, in the previous section, right, that we saw two weeks ago, we saw multitudes coming to John the the Baptist or John the Baptizer to be baptized in the Jordan. The text says all of the country of Judea and all of Jerusalem clearly here all being used figuratively, right? We don't think Pontius Pilate came out to the Jordan to be baptized, but great multitudes coming to be baptized by Christ, by by John. A beautiful picture here of a prophet like Elijah preparing the way of the Lord. And also a beautiful picture of a people who long for the coming of the Messiah, preparing their own hearts for this event. But the narrative here now shifts from a great multitude to a single individual, that is Jesus. It is as though you are in a hall and the house lights are on and attention is dispersed among many. But suddenly the spotlight turns on and you see one person. And yet... Jesus' arrival into the scene is very unassuming, isn't it? It came to pass. He just strolls into the scene. If we're not carefully paying attention, we would perhaps think that this is an unimportant event. We would perhaps think that Jesus' baptism is an unimportant detail in the ministry of Christ. Commentator James Edwards, in his commentary on the Gospel of Mark, says, Mark recounts Jesus' baptism in a mere 53 words in the original Greek. The The significance of the event is vastly disproportionate to its size, however. Jesus' arrival in the Gospel of Mark is remarkable but not because of its fanfare and fireworks, but because it's so unassuming. It just came to pass in those days that Jesus came to John in the Jordan. As though this was just a common occurrence. The God-man presenting himself To be baptized. Mark is not doing this here unintentionally. He is highlighting Jesus' meekness. He is highlighting Jesus' humility. There is a sense in which Mark wants us to relate to Christ. Mark is displaying Jesus identifying with the common man. He doesn't even come from a great city. Rome, Corinth, Ephesus, Damascus. He doesn't even come from 
Jerusalem. No, he is a simpleton from Nazareth. In, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 45 through 46, we see an interesting interaction between two early disciples. Philip goes up to Nathaniel to report his first encounter with Jesus. And he says, Philip found, Na- found Nathaniel and said to him, We have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathaniel said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. If if there were cars during the time of Jesus, and if there were bumper stickers, you would see the bumper sticker, Don't Nazareth my Jerusalem. There's nothing good that could possibly come out of Nazareth, right? Wrong. What does Philip say? Come and see. I love this. Philip is saying, I know this sounds unbelievable, but just come and see him. And very often this is the answer, right? Come and see Jesus. There there is glory in seeing Christ. I, I know it's hard to believe his message, but if you could just see him. This is why when we preach, what we're trying to do is expose Jesus. If you will just see him. If you would just see him for whom he is, you would know how great and wonderful Christ is. Friends, as a matter of fact, even if we know Christ, that is still the call in our life today. Look to Christ and live. And the goal, the trajectory of our life is to keep looking to Christ. To keep looking to Him. And what is that great promise in 1 John? It is that one day we will see Him face to face. And when we do see Him, it will all be complete. Finished. So, as Christians, we're called to look to Christ. Find Him in the Word. Find Him in the fellowship of believers. Find Him in the work of the Spirit in our lives. Christ is the center of our faith. He is the center of our religion. When we look to men, we're discouraged. But when we look to Christ, we find encouragement. When we look at the world, we're discouraged. But when our eyes are fixed in Christ, There is encouragement that will carry us through this life all the way to the completed work that he has begun in you. Jesus is accessible. He did not come to be entertained by kings and leaders. He did not come for the celebrities, for the popular or for the socialites. He did not come for the rich, for the powerful, or for the mighty. He came in humility. And that's good news. Because that means he came for you and he came for me. He came as a simple man to simple men. 
1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. For consider your calling, brothers. That is true of us as well. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish among the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Friends, that's us. Think about us. What makes us remarkable? We're not too powerful. We're not too rich. We're not too wise. What makes us remarkable is that we have found God. And the world looks at the church and they are puzzled. What is so special about these people? The answer, nothing except for the fact that Christ lives in us. This is us, the fools. This is us, the weak. We are an unremarkable bunch. We are not great. We are not even good. But we have been found good. You know, I remember middle school age, school projects. There was always an attempt to join the group where the smart kid was, right? Because if you can just join the group where that one smart kid is, maybe, maybe you can share on his or you can share on her grades. You don't need to be great. You don't need to be smart. You don't need to know the contents. You just need to know the people who do. And when you do and when you join them, they can help you. Children, by the way, this is not an advice that I'm giving you. Be the smart kid, right? But, but the picture that is painted here is this. Christ is the smart kid. Christ is working on the project. And he's actually looking at us and, say, and he says, would you like to join my group? W- would you like to be a part of my group? You, a common person, would you like to work with God? Rely on his wisdom, on his power, on his knowledge. Mark is also displaying Jesus representing the common man. Not just identifying, not just saying, I am one of you. But Jesus is carrying on the responsibility of the common man. This passage can be puzzling, can't it? We learned last week that John preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. But why is Jesus pursuing the baptism of John? We know Jesus never sinned. So he doesn't need to repent or any of anything or even be forgiven of anything. The Gospel of Mark is quite brief. So in Mark, we don't have much information beyond the fact that Jesus was baptized by John. But in the other Gospel, we find light behind the purpose of Jesus' baptism. In Matthew, Jesus' baptism, when he approaches John, John attempts to prevent him from being baptized. He says, Jesus, 
you don't need to be baptized. Jesus, let me fix your theology. I need to be baptized by you. You don't need to be baptized by me. John knew that Jesus was the sinless lamb of God, and his job was to take away the sin of the world because he had no sin in himself. But here is Jesus' response to John in Mark 3. Let it be so now. In other words, baptize me. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So the purpose of Jesus' baptism was to fulfill all righteousness. Now, you might be saying, Pastor Lucas, that doesn't help much. I don't know what that means. Well, let me try to explain. When Jesus is saying that he must fulfill all righteousness, he's saying that he must fulfill all righteousness on our behalf. He must fulfill all righteousness for us. So it is not just that we join Jesus' group for our school project. It is that we joined his group and he alone has done all the work. He presented the project alone and we are going to get the same grade as him. A perfect score. What have we done? Nothing. There is no righteousness found in us. What has he what has him done? Everything. He is righteous in every way. And his grade, his score, is our score. This is what Jesus is saying here. I've come to earth to fulfill every requirement of righteousness that should be on you. And I'm going to symbolize this with this baptism. Jesus is righteous, and yet in his active obedience, he accomplishes righteousness not just for himself, but for those who are his, his people, the church. This was a priestly function in the Old Covenant. Priests would wash themselves as they prepared to stand before God, pleading for his righteousness on behalf of the people. Exodus 40, 40. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put on Aaron the holy garments and you shall anoint him and consecrate him that he may serve me as a priest. Priests represent the people before God. Once the priests were washed and consecrate, consecrated, they would go before the presence of God and present to him sacrifices. First, for themselves, because they were sinners. And then, for the people. Why is Jesus being baptized? Jesus is being baptized here because he's stepping into the priestly He's saying, you need a priest before God, and I will be that priest for you. But Jesus is a different kind of priest, isn't he? Here's what Hebrews says about Jesus' priesthood. For it was 
for, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sin and then for those of the people, since he did, not, he did this once for all when he offered up himself. While other priests had to present a sacrifice for their sin first and represent the people before God after, Jesus never had to present a sacrifice for himself. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God, representing the sinful and shameful before holy God. No, Jesus is not being baptized for his sins. He is being baptized for our sins. Jesus needs no further righteousness. You and I do for our sake. You see that? The righteousness for our sake. He that is God the Father made him that is God the Son to be sin. Unless we're confused, who knew no sin. So that in him we might become something we're not. We might become the righteousness of God. Jesus' baptism symbolizes his obedience to the Father, an obedience that we would that that we should observe. But that Jesus would observe through his entire life, even as he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. At the center of the Gospel of Mark, Jesus himself is the redemption for his people. Jesus enters the tapestry of human history and says, in every way, you, all, us, in every way you failed, I will succeed. And if you trust in my success, if you trust in my work, if you trust in my righteousness, you too will be righteous. Friends, there is no other way. There's no other way to be righteous before God than to trust in Christ. None of your works will suffice. What will you say before God when you stand pleading your case? Oh, I went to church. I read the Bible. I gave to the poor. God will say, that's not enough. That is not enough. Because our good works come stained by sin. We need works that have never come into contact with sin. And that is Christ's work alone. Salvation depends on obedience. Salvation depends on perfect obedience. It has always been that way. But the history of humanity has been a history of failed attempts at receiving righteousness from God based on obedience. Adam failed. Abraham failed. Moses failed. Israel failed. David failed. Everyone failed. But where all failed, Jesus succeeded. So Jesus invites us to enjoy of his righteousness by faith. That is the only way to be righteous. 
So as Jesus is being baptized in, all, in order to fulfill all righteousness, all those who put their faith in him are being baptized in righteousness with him. Perhaps one of the most puzzling events here is this. As John baptizes Jesus, Jesus is baptizing John. And along with John, all of us who come to, fa- who come to him by faith. Now this brings up an interesting question. If Jesus was baptized on my behalf, why do I need to be baptized? Well, I think the clearest reason is because Jesus tells us to be baptized. Right? In the Great Commission, he says, go make disciples. And what does disciple making look like in the church? Baptizing them. So if you are a disciple of Christ, you demonstrate your obedience and you demonstrate your faith by being baptized. The New Testament does not take the baptism of believers casually, optionally. When the Ethiopian eunuch understands the gospel in Acts 8 and asks Philip, here's water, what prevents me from being baptized? Philip's response was not, oh, it's up to you. We can do this or we cannot do this. It is whatever you want. We can just skip this part of Christianity. No. Philip commanded the chariot to stop and immediately baptize him. It is a commandment, and we as believers must heed, must obey. So, friend, what is preventing you from being baptized today? But I think there is a second reason why the fact that Jesus was baptized on our behalf does not replace our need to be baptized. I think we see that in verse 8 from our previous message from the Gospel of Mark. There, John says to the people, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's baptism is not Jesus' baptism. Did you hear that in our scripture reading that Kevin read today earlier? When Paul (coughs) meets the disciples of John in Ephesus, he asks, have you heard of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? And they say, no, we've only heard of John's baptism. So what does Paul do? He baptizes them. And suddenly there is clear evidence that the Spirit is at work in them. So friends, baptism is a big deal. As central, we believe baptism is such a big deal, we've made baptism a part of our name. Central Baptist Church. Has the Lord called you to himself? Have you followed that calling with baptism as a sign and as a proclamation of your faith in him? You see, I, I love I love Baptist theology. 100 committed, 100% committed to it. But I think it's unhelpful when Baptists say that baptism is merely a sign. 
It's not. It is not less than a sign, but it is so much more than that. It, 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 is, a, it is a declaration. It is a proclamation. It's an opportunity for us to preach the gospel visually. It's an opportunity for us to say, this is what it looks like to be transformed by Christ. This is what it looks like to receive the Spirit of Christ. This is what it looks like to be forgiven of your sins. This is what it looks like to be united with Christ. Friends, it's not merely, it is not just a symbol. It's an opportunity for the world to see the gospel. Let us take this seriously. And, and, and let us call it what it is. It is a means by which God displays his grace to us. It is, it is not casual. It is not minor. It is not optional. So if you're wondering about baptism, I would love to talk to you about baptism anytime. Children, if you're wondering about baptism, should you be baptized? The first thing you should do is talk to your parents. You should go up to your mom, you should go up to your dad, and you should say, Mom, Dad, I think I understand what baptism means. Can you help me understand if I'm supposed to be baptized? And your parents will be able to help you and will be able to lead you to understand rightly what the, te what the Bible teaches about baptism. While we've considered Jesus' humility as he identifies with us, now let us consider his exaltation. The doctrine of the Trinity is central for the Christian faith. Belief in the Trinity is necessary in order for someone to be a Christian. Belief in the Trinity is necessary for salvation. There are no Christians. There is no one who has ever or will ever be saved that denies that God is triune. For the first 300 years of the church, Christian theology and Christian thought was consumed with the question, what is the Trinity? The Trinity is the divine Godhead. Christians have historically and biblically described the Trinity as God being one in essence and three in person. Two pillars uphold the doctrine of the Trinity, equality in nature distinction in person. Perhaps nowhere in Scripture do we see the Trinity more clearly than in verses 10 and 11 of our passage today. But why, or what is the Trinity doing here? Why has the Trinity appeared in such a clear way? Specifically, why do the Father and the Son appear in the scene? I'm sorry, why do the Father and the Spirit appear in the scene? The Father and the Spirit appear in the scene in order to exalt the Son. The Father and the Spirit make much of the Son. They each exalt Christ in a different way. But they're both saying, you alone can represent God's people for the sake of righteousness. You alone can be the true High priest, the Spirit does this 
by anointing the Son. And the Father does this by affirming the Son. So in verse 10, we see the Spirit anointing the Son. Jesus comes up out of the water. By the way, a clear picture of immersion, isn't it? And immediately the heavens are torn open. Not just dividing, not just coming apart, but being torn apart. The language here is the same language that we're going to see in Mark 15 when as Jesus dies on the cross, the veil is torn open in the temple and now the most holy place is accessible. Once again, reinforcing Jesus' priestly role. And as the heavens rip open, the Spirit descends on Christ like a dove. Now, erroneously, some believe that Jesus became divine when the Spirit descended on him. In other words, some people believe that Jesus became God as the Spirit descended on him. That is not true. That is absolutely wrong. And this is a damnable heresy. Jesus is divine because Jesus is God. Jesus does not need the Holy Spirit in order to be God. Jesus is God. The Spirit is God. He was divine from the very beginning. He is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. The Spirit descends on Christ not to make Him divine, but in order to empower Him for His ministry. But why? Couldn't Jesus simply minister out of His own divine nature? Why does Jesus then rely on the Spirit. Hebrews 2.17 Therefore, He had to be made like His brothers. That's us. He had to be made like His brothers in every respect so that He might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of His people. It was necessary for Jesus to be made like us in order for Him to represent us. So if Jesus was going to represent his people, he had to be made like his people. If Jesus was going to represent his people, he had to live like his people. He had to live by their rules and he had to be one among them. Now, this is encouraging because Jesus lived. He did all things. By the power of the Spirit. Jesus throughout his entire ministry relied on the Holy Spirit. He lived. He obeyed. He died. He resurrected. He ascends to the right hand of the Father. And then what does he do? He sends us the Spirit. The spirit that sustained Jesus 
from his conception all the way to his resurrection is the very spirit that he sends to us. So friends, the power that Christ had in him for ministry is the power that we have in us. Romans 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life. We're not dead spiritually. We're alive to your mortal bodies through the spirit who dwells in you. Friends, we are alive in Christ. His spirit lives in us, so there's nothing left for us to do. We are one with Christ. Our salvation is secure. Paul in Ephesians called the Holy Spirit our seal. So do you struggle with assurance that you belong to God? Do you struggle with assurance that you will make it to the end? Friends, if the Spirit of God is in you, you are sealed for salvation. And you are not capable of losing yourself because the Spirit is more powerful than you. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling. That's the work of the Spirit in us. Christ lived by it. And we too live by the Spirit with the assurance that the Spirit gives us. Friends, we often are tempted to doubt, to question. Our assurance very often will go according to how much righteousness we think we're living by or how unrighteous we're living by. Assurance does not come from that. Assurance does not come from within. Assurance comes from without. Assurance comes from us looking to Christ and asking the question, am I trusting in him? And if we are, friends, his spirit is in us. So there's no condemnation left for us. There's no fear for the believer. Perfect love that is given us by the spirit of love, fruit of the spirit, casts away all fear. Now, that's one side of the token, right? The assurance that we have. On the other side, because the spirit of Christ is in us, we should expect to see Christ-like character in our lives. So, do our lives demonstrate the fact that the Spirit is in us? Do we live as Christ lived, a life of ministry and service, as we, uh, as we are uh, living our lives? Are our lives characterized by spiritual power and vitality? Are we living in victory over sin? Friends, these things are ours, and if the Spirit of Christ is in us, these things must characterize us. So one of the things that the Spirit does is it convicts us of sin. It convicts us of that which is not godly, of that which is not spiritual in us, and it empowers us to shave that off of our lives. So, in what way? Is the Spirit calling you to grow in righteousness? What sins in your life is the Spirit saying to you, let go? Do not cling to it so tightly. In what ways is the Spirit of God 
convicting you to grow in righteousness. One of the values of our church is spirit-empowered relationships. We're called to love one another in this church beyond our preferences, beyond our power, and with no partiality. Some of the relationships that we have at our church are relationships of affinity. We gravitate to uh, those who are like us naturally. Is that a bad thing? No, not if that's one aspect of our relationship. But some of the relationships that we have around us must only be explained by the fact that Jesus died and rose again and gave us of his spirit. And therefore, we are able to love those who are hard to love. So, do you see those relationships in your life? Are you pursuing to love those who are hard to love in the church? Are, are you pursuing to love the way Christ loved you when you were yet a sinner? Is the Holy Spirit empowering our affinity? Is the Holy Spirit empowering our fellowship? Friends, churches must not have silos. Churches must not be filled with cliques and groups. And we, we praise the Lord because we see the Holy Spirit at work at our church. And yet this call is always constant in our hearts at all times in every church. That our relationships must be explained by the supernatural power of Christ. We love not because we are like others. We love because God first loved so, so can I encourage you, can I encourage you to pray to the Lord and say, Lord, bring more people into my life that challenge me to love in a supernatural way. Yes, really. But teach me how to love supernaturally. Because, friends, when we do that, that is greater assurance that the Spirit is at work in us. When we do that, we give a testimony to the world, right? We are saying, this is what God is loved, right? This, this is what Jesus said, right? Uh, they are going to demonstrate that, that they're my by their unity. They're going to love one another as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. Perfect love. So friends, is there room for us to grow? Always. Always. And let me tell you this. We will not accomplish this in the flesh. We'll only accomplish this by the power of the Spirit. But not only does the Spirit anoint the Son, also the Father affirms the Son. Verse 11. A voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Twice do we hear this voice from heaven in Mark. Here and during the transfiguration. This is such a significant event that God speaks audibly from heaven. Can you imagine what you would have been like to be there for Jesus' baptism? Hearing the voice of the Father from heaven. 
What an incredible event. But why does the Father speak from heaven? Well, he speaks to affirm Jesus is who he says he is, his son. He affirms his relationship with Jesus. The concept of sonship is, is a concept that runs throughout the Bible. Perhaps most significantly in the Old Testament, God calls Israel his firstborn son. Exodus 4.22, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And God will lead his son out of Egypt. Why? So that his son can bless every nation. That was the basis of the covenant God made with Abraham. But throughout the Old Testament, we see Israel failing at this calling over and over again. In Hosea 11, verses 1 and 2, we hear this. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. This is a reference to Exodus 4, 22. And what was the result of that? The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Israel failed to obey God and therefore it failed to bless the nations. As the Old Testament closes, the picture looks bleak as God failed, as His plan failed. Is there hope still for the nations? But God has a greater son Jesus, he is true and faithful Israel. He was born a Jew under the law, just like Israel. He is baptized in the waters of the Jordan River, just like Israel was. He emerges out of the water, and suddenly hope is renewed. The Father says, with this I am well pleased. And in every way Israel failed, Jesus succeeded. And the promise of blessing from God to every nation, the blessing that seemed impossible to accomplish, is here now being fulfilled. The Father's affirmation of the Son is an affirmation of His priestly ministry on our behalf. He is the only offering the Father is pleased with. And what is Jesus' offering on behalf of His people? His own life. Friends, taxation sometimes can be right or wrong, but we need to pay. The demands of God on us are always right. If we don't pay our taxes, we may have greater fines, do jail time. No big deal. If we don't pay our sins, if we don't pay for our sins, the payment for that is eternity in hell. That's where sins will be paid for. Government may, re may represent us for certain things. Sometimes government does a good job representing the people. Sometimes not so. But Jesus represents us in matters that no one 
could represent God for us. And Jesus always accomplishes his goal. Friends, we will have to respond to God for our sins one day. And if we try to stand before him without a paraclete, without a lawyer, without an advocate, we'll be immediately condemned. But if our representative is Christ, if we are baptized with Christ into his baptism, if we are one with him, God will look at us and they will see nothing but righteousness. Our sins paid for, the righteousness of Christ accredited to us. Friend, if you're here with us today and you're not resting on the finished work of Christ, friend, you are in a perilous place. But friend, you don't need to be there much longer. You can right now profess your faith in Christ. He will take on himself your sins and he will give to you his righteousness. Friends, God will hold no sin against you. This is the message of the gospel. This is what we pray that you would receive this day. So friends, do not try to do life representing yourself. Look to Christ who can perfectly represent you before God. Do that today. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that Christ is so great. He represents us in such an incredible way. His work on our behalf is perfect. We lack nothing. We praise you for that, Lord. Father, we pray that we would rest assured that Christ is our only hope in this life and in the life to come. Lord, we pray that we would drink deeply of the fountain that flows from the veins that Christ supplies for us. We pray in the name of Jesus.